This is Glenn Crooks on frame. No coach has been more successful on the women's side in the sport of soccer than Jill Ellis, both domestically and globally. My one-on-one -on -one with the Portsmouth, England native will be coming up in just a moment. Also on today's episode, an interview with Mark Nichols, which I recorded in the spring when he had presided over the highly successful Seattle Sounders Academy. The Athletic is reporting that he will join Expansion Charlotte in the same capacity. In our chat, you'll get a chance to learn about Nichols' thoughts on the game and a look into how things might be run in Charlotte. As of this recording on Friday, uh, the New York City Football Club still without a manager, although a source indicated to me a day earlier that the announcement will come very soon. It's a good thing as preseason and preparations for the CONCACAF Champions League will begin on January the 11th in Florida with the preseason opener on January the 18th. A report out of Holland indicated that Gio van Bronckhorst, whose name had emerged as far back as April when City was in the midst of a six-game windless streak to open the season, has said no to NYCFC to replace Dome Terrain and instead will take a position in China's Super League. Then there was a tweet by Will Forbes at Transfers MLS. He said a source in Norway told him that Ronnie Dela is the top candidate to be the next manager for New York City. He currently manages Valerenga in Norway's top tier and three years at Celtic before that, winning the double in 2016 before getting replaced by Brendan Rodgers. So I spoke to Willie McNabb, who is the U15 academy coach for Celtic, who knows Ronnie a bit. He told me that Della's preferred style is to control the game, play forward attacking football, and play with a high tempo. But we'll wait for a club announcement to see if this source pans out. Willie had no information about that. A friend told me this potential departure has also made the television news in Norway. The odd thing here is that he reportedly extended his contract with Valeranga in December. On what appears to be a more definite note, I tweeted yesterday that Keaton Parks could well be staying at New York City FC. His one-year loan from Benfica had expired, so without much news, the speculation was that Parks would be going back to Portugal's most successful club. Instead, he's going to stay. Paul Tenorio of The Athletic says that New York City and Parks have agreed to a permanent transfer, and the 21-year-old from Texas is signing a multi-year deal to stay with New York City FC, which is great news for the club as a playmaker in the midfield to work alongside MLS assist leader Maxi Morales. Jill Ellis, who had no organized soccer available to her as a youth in England, made an indelible mark on the women's game this decade as both a college and professional coach in the United States. Ellis was twice the interim coach of the U.S. women's national team before taking over the position permanently in 2014. Ultimately, she became the first coach to win back-to-back -back World Cups and is a two-time FIFA World Coach of the Year. A uh, third-team All-American at William & Mary in 1987, Ellis rose to prominence guiding the UCLA women's program to unprecedented heights. Over a 12-year period, the Manchester United supporter guided the Bruins to eight Final Fours, including a stretch of seven in a row between 2003 and 2009. Ellis' inauguration with the U.S. women's national team came as an assistant to Pia Sundhag at the 2008 Olympics, the first of her four major trophies earned as either an assistant or head coach. I recently spoke with Ellis on Sirius XMFC's Defining Moments of the Decade. 
Ellis retiring as the all-time winningest coach for the U.S. women after capturing World Cup titles in 2015 and 2019. When you try to specify uh, memorable moments, uh, this might be an unfair question, but, but what is your most memorable moment? Let's go on the field first. What really stands out to you? Is there a moment? Uh, uh, I mean, I probably would have to say the the match this year, you know, against France in the, in the World Cup. Uh, so I guess the quarterfinals, just because of the the magnitude of the game and, the, and just the atmosphere was it was unbelievable. I mean, I think it's rare that we are clearly the uh, away team, but you know, it was packed, it was loud, it was intense, and there was so much at stake. And so I think that was probably the moment in the game that I just enjoyed I mean obviously I enjoyed it if we won but but more so uh, just the whole the whole spectacle of the thing was just fantastic was part of your enjoyment the fact that France uh, maybe in that game I'm not sure how it uh, I don't remember the odds or anything like that but uh, being at home the favorite in that match possibly but also the team that uh, on the outside there was discussion about this is a team that's catching up or maybe has surpassed the U.S. So is that part of the satisfaction? I mean, I just yeah, winning is the satisfaction. To be fair, I mean, we uh, you know they're a good team. I mean, there's a lot of good teams going, and you know there isn't a gap. It's you know we just you know you have to perform on the day to create that separation. But in terms of resources and players and talent and you know domestic leagues, I mean, a lot of these top top countries now have that, but. So then it comes down to in the moment, in the performance, you know, how do you create that separation to be able to win? And uh, so I think, you know, that was, yes, it was incredibly rewarding for our players on that day to go out against a really, really talented uh, France team. So, you know, we're favorites or not. I think we always, I think just the mentality of our team, you always fancy your chances in a game, um, regardless of what the numbers are. But I think it was just uh it was a really good performance by us as well. I think, you know, in terms of getting the early goal, then getting another one, probably should have had the third in terms of, you know, we got called back. A little bit of a mental error on, on their goal. But, you know, overall, I think it was a very good performance for, for the magnitude of the game, as I said. So, Jill, you're noted for your calm demeanor. But when you look at your team, you've got some massive personalities. When you, when you look back at, at your whole experience with the U.S. Uh, women, uh, who are the the characters that really stand out for you in, in the team's success? I mean, you know, I, I've been I, I've been fortunate to be with this program since like 2008. You know, when Pia brought me in to go to the Beijing Olympics, and you know, I, it's hard it's hard to pinpoint you know players because we've had so many tremendous players. You know, Abby Wombat, Chrissy Rampone were my captains in 2015. You know, Carly Lloyd had a you know an amazing World Cup. Um, this World Cup, you know, I think it was, you know, we, we were a perfect blend, I think, of our, of some of our senior veterans, Ben Rapino, Alex Morgan, Kelly O'Hara, and some of these, you know, not even younger players, but Julia, it's kind of coming into her own in this, in this World Cup. And uh, so it's, it's hard to, you know, to, to pick players, but I think the, you know, the, the household names of players have, have had consistency, you know, I think in performance, Tobin Heath, all these guys, I mean, they've just been, and they've been outstanding. Uh, so it's hard to say which one, but I certainly think, you know, the players that have stepped up in those big moments uh, will forever be remembered in terms of the program's legacy. Well, one of those personalities uh, won the Ballon d'Or 
obviously uh, got it done on the field as yeah. well, Megan Rapino. But uh, Rapino, just yeah. maybe describe the overall, you know, the impact she's had both on and off the field. Well, I, you know, I said, I mean, Pino's been a, she's been a standout in this program for many, many years. I think, yeah, probably people still remember one of her biggest moments was, you know, in 2011, the, the ball she served into Wombach against uh, Brazil. So, she, you know, she's been a, a mainstay in this program for a long, long time. I think what was, was kind of cool about 2019, it was, it was, you know, there was movement in terms of, you know, social activism. And I mean, you know, the Time's Up, time's up movement. And, you know, that blended well with, I think, Megan's um, desire to, you know, further and advance, uh, you know, social activism in terms of, you know, the things that she supports. Uh, so it was, and then to have that, you know, impact on the field as well, it was almost, you know, sort of said it described it as like a perfect storm. So, you know, I think it was a tremendous year. I think she carried a lot of um, responsibility, but also, you know, a lot of the, the confidence of the team. I think she's, you know, a player that naturally exudes confidence and, and players feed off that. So I think it's, you know, even she didn't play in the England game, but, you know, even uh, a player like that can have an impact on that game, even not being on the pitch in terms of, you know, the messaging to her teammates and, and just the way she carries herself. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was a, obviously a wonderful year and, and, and got a lot of awards for it. But, um, you know, like I said, she's been a good player for a long, a very good player for a long time. Now, a, a player, Jill, that, that flies a bit under the radar, Julie Ertz, the former Julie Johnston, and she was named U.S. Soccer Female Player of the Year. But if you go back to 2015 during qualifying for the World Cup, she was uh, she was in the pool, but certainly not uh, on the front end of your thoughts to, to play central defender in the midfield. Her, yep. her emergence is uh, rather fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I watch them even before they come into our arena. So I don't know. I don't know if you remember the. I think it was Steve Swanson. He had the. It was in Japan, the U twenty World Cup. And I remember watching those games. And in those games, you know, we call her JJ. Julie was just a. She was a tour de force. She was just uh, very, very special in that tournament. And I think they're a major player in the success of that twenty twenty World Cup. So you know, she's not. She's not completely uh, sort of, you know, been a player that's been been in the shadows, but she's done very well. But I think, you know, what happened in 2015 was here's a young player coming into the, you know, to the senior side with a, you know, experience, but obviously not, you know, full team, a lot of full team experience. Christy Rampone unfortunately gets injured, and JJ steps into that role and sort of never looks back. And you know, I think that it's it's fitting. I think that she's had this. Uh, this recognition this year in terms of, you know, player of the year, because it, I, I think I said this about it. It doesn't matter what environment she's going to stand out, whether it's, you know, in a training exercise, if people just random people come and watch our training, she's going to stand out. And I think this is a sign of a great player. You know, you go to the end of the cell game, she's going to stand out our, our games. So the consistency, the professionalism, but ultimately the talent that she's got, um, you know, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And now the versatility that she's added in terms of being able to play, you know, multiple positions for us. I mean, she's invaluable. The, the ability for us to be able to play her in the six and then drop her down to the back line when we needed to in certain moments um, was great flexibility. So a tremendous player. Super happy for her to get this award this year. Well, Jill, I asked you to consider what your uh, most memorable moment was. Uh, how about uh, during this dominant run by the U.S. women's national team? Is there a trophy in there uh, that is uh, – most impressive in your mind based on circumstances or, or what have you? 
you know, I would have to say the most recent one, and, and the reason being, you know, I said in 2015, this is because they'd increased the the size of the Women's World Cup, you know, with more teams. But then I said, this is going to be the hardest World Cup to win. But I have to say, 2019, I would say the same thing going into it, because, again, the the level of teams, you know, you're seeing the Netherlands that weren't on the scene 10 years ago. You're seeing, um, you know, these, these other good teams that are, you know, now competing and obviously competing for trophies and championships. That I think in terms of it being the most competitive and probably the hardest route we had to take to, to get to a trophy, in terms of like the teams we had to play, I think this one was probably the one that stood out for me as, you know, just a, an exceptional performance. You know, I don't think we gave up many goals and, uh, you know, didn't, didn't have to go through penalty kicks to, to get to the finals. And uh, with... The, the World Cup championship and the ensuing uh, celebration series, the victory lap uh, around the country, U.S. remaining number one in the FIFA World Ranking, so no shocker there. Can you classify how uh, the women's game here in the U.S. and especially the U.S. women's national team have impacted on the global level? What are, what are some of the important uh, parts of that? Yeah, I know. It actually was interesting, and I, I don't know if you saw this, but before the before the World Cup final, um, the Netherlands actually put out a video thanking the U.S. team, which I think was pretty remarkable, but it and probably unprecedented. But but it was it was thanking the U.S. players and the platform that they have for you know moving the game forward, but also advocating. And I thought that was a really telling sign of just just the reach of this team, not not in terms of just popularity, but in terms of you know. Uh, affecting players in other countries, you know, whether it's, you know, fighting for, you know, uh, salaries, you know, some, some of these countries get very, very little wage. Some of them have to buy, still buy their own equipment. So I think the the reach in terms of to players and to advance themselves with other federations, I think was massive. I think the, you know, 1.1 billion watched the, the Women's World Cup this summer. So certainly the popularity of the team and the, um, you know, the marketability of the team. I think it really elevated this 2019 because of all the other good teams there. It just elevated it to, I think, the the pinnacle in terms of a, a women's sporting event, uh, a team sporting event in the world. So, yeah, I mean, it's been far-reaching. I think the other thing that's been great is you have players come to our domestic league, international players, and so they get, they train with our players and they they see the intensity and they see the level of fitness. And I, you know, I do think, um, whether you like it or not, I think it's a good thing to have different players from different parts of the world in here, but we are helping to grow their game as well because it's just some of the things that they take away. And likewise, you know, same in terms of uh, what we take away from, from their game as well. 106 wins, seven losses, and 19 draws. The all-time winningest coach in U.S. women's national team history, Jill Ellis who ended that conversation with thoughts on the benefits of the NWSL, considered the top league in the world on the women's side. Well, for Major League Soccer on the men's side, the growth of teams continued recently with the announcement that Charlotte would be the 30th MLS franchise, paying a fee in excess of $300 million to join in with a project that is already taking shape on the sporting side. The founder of the global scouting network Star Sports and Entertainment, Zoran Kernetta, was named sporting director for the club that will begin play in 2021. Of the 150-plus players he has negotiated contracts for, New York City FC striker Eber is one of them. 
The Athletic has also reported that Mark Nichols, instrumental in building the Seattle Sounders Academy, was the club's first hire and will fill a similar role as Academy Director and Director of Recruitment and Player Development for the first team at Charlotte. I spoke to Nichols for Pro Soccer USA back in the spring of 2019 after the Sounders U-17s became the first American club to win the championship division of the GA Cup in Texas with players like Daniel Leva. Although Charlotte has yet to confirm, I thought it would be interesting to share my conversation with Mark, especially if you are a Charlotte supporter. You get a feel for his methods and thoughts on development and scouting. When I watched your team uh, in Dallas, I saw the West Ham match and the final. It was, uh, you know, that's one of the things I think that stood out is their reaction under pressure. Is that something that is a, a trademark of, of your teachings? Um, I'd like to think so. Um, you know, we, the way that we play here in Seattle, I think it reflects the, the environment we have here. Is You know, we try and play with a high tempo. Um, we do try and move the ball quickly. It, it suits our style. It suits our city. It suits our climate. Um, but of course, if you look at, at the, you know the top levels of the game, that's you know that's the, that's the way the game is. Is that you know that technical execution under pressure and, and, and the sharpness of that. And sometimes I think as coaches we can make a mistake by saying you know talking about speed of play because clever players also slow the game down too and um, know when to find a, a rhythm of the game. So it's important that we don't stress that that's always just hundred mile an hour soccer because um, that doesn't work either. Um, but certainly, yes, we, we know that at the top top levels of the game, our players need to have real proficiency under pressure in tight spaces. And um, But at the same time, perhaps even more importantly, be able to understand the game and what it needs at the time. The, the thing I notice about the results down there, and I didn't see all these matches, but again, when you look at the results, it's impressive. Uh, a victory over uh, Flamengo, uh, the uh, I believe the defending champions, the uh, River Plate, they're two or three-time champions. Uh, West Ham, uh, that match I did say, see, I think it was 4-0 at the half, if I'm not mistaken, and then the uh, the victory over Valencia in the final. So you're really going up against, and West Ham has an excellent reputation on the academy level, so you're really going up against these, um, what people would term powerhouses. So what... How has uh, how has your club been able to uh, advance here? I suppose we maybe we start from the from the beginning of your arrival in '14. How, how has this been able to progress? It's it's all about players. <laughs> um, you know, I think you know we, we we try and provide an environment for players with the coaching, with education, with all of the work that we have going on behind the scenes here, and that sort of stems back to that period because you know I've been quite fortunate here and that we've. Um, up the resources um, in terms of recruitment, like I mentioned, education, sports performance, medical, and it's been a lot of work from a, a lot of different people. And this sort of class, if you like, they, you know, we had a good year last year at the GA Cup. The 2001 large, largely 2001 group won the premier level of that, and um, we've also had some really rich experiences winning the national championship last year. A number of those players were on that group. Um, and we've travelled overseas and, and played in tournaments. And, and so when we come against up against some of these sort of storied names that we see regularly and are in awe of, we realise pretty quickly that, you know what, guys, we're just as good as them and we can do it. And so it, it's almost been instilling the belief in the players that, yeah, that, you know, these are great clubs and they've you know got these sort of long list of 
wonderful players that they've developed, but why can't that be us? Um, it really sounds like the... In all of these events. Yeah, and, and it really sounds like the refrain of the young players that you talk to on the U.S. national team, the senior team, and how they... Um, some of them have th- said that their experience in watching uh, past teams is that they seem to play in fear or in almost too much respect, whether it was how they were coached or how they played. So what you're saying uh, seems to you know be parallel to, to what the young players on that level are thinking. Yeah, you know, what was really interesting about GA Cup last week, was obviously there's lots of good teams. And, you know, we, we did play you know, particularly well against West Ham and had a real period of uh, we were quite devastating in front of goal. But the other games were, were 1-0. Um, Flamengo, um, River and Valencia were all last-minute winners. And in each of those games, you know, we, we were as good as them. Um, but, it, you know, genuinely could have gone either way. So I think there was a, even more so, there was a certain belief and, um, that we've over time tried to instill in these players and, and a real resilience and, and durability about them too. And I'd like to think that although, you know, we have our brand of, of play, which we're proud of and I think was evident, but at the same time, you know, we, we stick to the reality of the game. And certain games, the Flamengo game, for example, they were, they were, they were so superior physically. That, you know, we really struggled with, with, with the build. We, we kept trying, we kept playing. But we had to find different ways against Flamengo to, to achieve the objective, which was to get through. And um, while we have our um, sort of theories on the game and, and practical application to it, there's also the, the reality that when you're in that uh, arena that you have to adjust and adapt. And I think that's been a strength of our, of our academy program and our players. I had a brief chat with Garth Lagerway. I think it was during your West Ham match. And that's where I discovered at Lagerway the uh, – uh, the general manager and president uh, of the Seattle Sounders, the first team. And that that is when I learned that, that five of the players in the game I'm watching, uh, the West Ham game, were signed to USL contracts. I had heard about uh, Danny Leva, uh, now with the first team. And uh, to me it was interesting. Lagerway uh, made some headlines not too long ago when he said that Seattle's not really able to spend big money on big DPs. And, and it caused a little uh, unrest, I think, among the supporters. But you look towards the academy and the homegrowns, and it seems obvious that maybe that's the way you're going to build. Is is that what we read into this? Uh, I think it's both. Uh, you know, the, 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 there's, there's a meeting of, you know, the top internationals throughout the world that the club is constantly looking at. And hopefully top youth um, players. I think to be a, a long-term success in MLS, you, you, you need both. Um, and I'm, you know, very obviously very happy to, to to play my part and our part in the academy's role with that. And on the one hand, you know, we we want to produce players that are in our first team squad. But you know, part of my ambition and and the ambition of the staff and everyone else is is to produce our own designated players. If they can do it in Munich and Barcelona and Manchester, why, why can't we do it in Seattle? Is is our attitude. So I, I think we can. I think we can achieve both within the, you know, the framework of MLS. How about the scouting side of it? I, I look at so Danny Leva we mentioned. I think he's from Las Vegas. Uh, then uh, Alfonso uh, Ocampo Chavez. I mean, he really stood out with with some of the goals he scored uh, at the GA Cup, and and he's a California guy. So 
tell us a little bit about your scouting network. And Leva's only 15, so I'm curious how he moves from home and how that all works out for him in your area. Yeah, so, you know, the, the network is something that we've developed over time. Um, I think I still feel like it's the the next frontier for us in the U.S. I'm convinced that every day that passes, we, we miss players. And somewhere under our noses, and, and again, some of that's a, a question of resources. I was, um, I've been very lucky. I've travelled, and I was in, in, in recently. I was visiting Aston Villa, and you know they had 32 local scouts. Whereas most MLS academies may be lucky to have one, one or maybe two. Um, so that's something that we've invested in that we think is very important. Um, the um, you know the, the Danny Labour story is an interesting one. We we provide homestays for the players. We have ten to twelve families, ten to twelve beds, so to speak. Um, we want the core of the academy to be from Seattle, and we've maintained that. I think it's eighty-three percent are still within the greater Seattle region. But we also know that by adding talent from out of town, adds to the quality, raises the standards, and it's, you know it's a very good. Um, part of our sort of diversity too. When we saw Danny Laver and we were very choosy about these players, he was a wonderful player, of course, but it was the way he conducted himself. He helped in the snack bar. He helped coach his kids and the, the other kids in his club, the young players. And we just knew from like a human perspective, he was he was a top draw character. What is the academic situation for him? If he's living with a family, is he simply inserted into the school system in, in that district? Yeah, he does a little bit of both. Um, we have a head of education here that takes care of the schooling needs for these young players because we have 10 to 12 of them now that are regularly uh, in first team and USL training in the mornings. Um, and so uh, each player is different. They all have different needs. We have some players that might struggle with some basic schooling, whereas others are heading to Harvard. So, you know, it's important that it's individualized. So there's a combination of online classes, running start program, which is, I think, unique to Washington in terms of college placement clashes. Um, some do a hybrid with um, with some regular schooling in the afternoon. Um, so it depends on the person. You know, Danny, for example, does very well at school and uh, is able to work independently for the most part and um, he has a combination of uh, one or two classes at school and one or two classes um, online with the program here. You said that scouting is the next frontier uh, in America. I'm sure you're referring to the academy level, the, the professional level. And, and yes, sometimes uh, there are forces that, you know, are into play, whether they're financial or how you, how you uh, outfit your group. But if you just took scouting in general, and let's say you had all the money you needed to make it happen, what what would you foresee? Uh, you say we're missing out on players. So what do we do? Yeah, it's it's probably, and I think over time it will be down to the, the clubs um, to have you know departments, and it can mean different things. It's not you know it's not saying that that. Um, you have all of these full-time positions, but it's about it's about building that scouting network, and it can be part-time people, it can be people in the clubs and in the communities, forging those relationships, and that's that's what we've tried to do. Um, but certainly, I think there needs to be a bigger and better plan for scouting. 
and that essentially boils down to resources. Um, we are able now to watch a lot of games on video, so that makes it somewhat easier. So I wonder in the future if video scouting will become more prominent. I wonder if clubs will start to hire video scouts. That would be an interesting idea, in my opinion. How many players actually played up with the U-17s that were in Texas, and how does that play into your philosophy? We've been very aggressive with that. Um, you know, Danny Labour, for example, is still playing up at under-17. Um, we took an 05 and an 04 to, to Dallas. Um, we have done that now, you know, for, for six of those players that, were, that played in the final, that was their third GA Cup. You know, they'd been we'd been taking them as under as under fifteens uh, a few years ago, and um, it's 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 it, it, it's almost at the point now we've we've not actually made it systematic where we say three guys have to always play up, um, which is is a consideration, but it's actually more than that when you look at it. I I think like if you looked at our club in the last three years and DA matches, it's probably us and New York City FC. Somebody did some stats on it. Um, that play up the most players. That's Mark Nichols, reportedly the first academy director and director of player development for the first team of the latest MLS expansion side, Charlotte. Nichols uh, returning to North Carolina, where he helped construct a youth club, NC Fusion, and also the head coach of the USL's Carolina Dynamo for three years. That'll do it for this episode. Be sure to, well, subscribe, if you will, to tune in iTunes, and also on Spotify. This is Glenn Crooks on Frame.